Ephesians chapter 4. I hope to do justice. I, I want to, in the times, the opportunities that I'll have to share with you in the next couple of weeks, two, three weeks, when I, I won't necessarily be in every sermon, but I do want to touch on this rich, rich chapter of Ephesians chapter 4. And I'd just like to go through the first um, uh, 10 verses very quickly uh, and uh, stay there for a moment. The Apostle Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So notice here, there's a calling that we have received and also a call to live in the light of that high, high, sublime calling that, that we have received from God. It's a calling to behavior, to godly living in the light of God's um, choosing us uh, as uh, his children. So live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And here you have the development of that uh, major idea. Be completely humble. Okay, so there's a calling to humility. Be gentle. There's a calling to gentleness. Be patient. There's a calling to patience. And also there's a calling to bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. So these are, these are uh, sort of logical results of uh, this high thought of living according to God's calling and, and will. And then he further develops uh, this idea. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For, I'm going to add the four as a consequence. There's one body <clears throat> and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So this is three very also powerful, powerful images. One body, one Spirit, one hope. And then it continues, one Lord. How many of you know that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ? There are not two Lords, there are not three Lords. There's one who has sovereignty over everything. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And notice the one there as well, the emphasis on one, oneness, unity, singleness. Call to one hope when you're called one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let me just leave it there because that's a hand, handful and a mouthful and a mindful as well. For there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We know that we will never do it full justice, but give us the capacity to extract a few practical truths from this meditation and, and give us the, the mind and spirit of spiritual geniuses so that we can absorb this, this, uh, these complex ideas and put them into practice in our own lives. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. 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 Now, why am I preaching this sermon this morning? What, is, uh, what led me to it? Well, you know, I, I've, been, I've been talking about some very, very heavy things these past few Sundays. And, I, you know, heaviness, of course, can wear you out. And it can, uh, you know, make you tired. And uh, sometimes there's a time to relax a little bit and, and to consume 
uh, a kind of teaching that is less demanding on our psyche and on our emotions and so on. I've been trying to feed you spinach and, uh, you know, I've been speaking about crisis, about um, uh, truth, obedience, division, um, making hard choices. I've been speaking about God's uh, workings in history in this particular time that we're living in and the fact that you know, we may, we may get through COVID, and we will, but there may be other things in, in the light of God's dealings with humanity. And this, this Kairos time, this time of definition that we are living in, not only in America, but really at the human level, humanity as a whole. So these are very heavy ideas and thoughts. The fact that, you know, God may be calling us to, to division, even though we think that unity, as I'm speaking here, is the only thing that matters. There's another modality to the kingdom, which is division. It's a, it sometimes can be conflict as well, but there is unity as well. There is severity, and there is God's gracious love that we spoke about earlier this morning. All of these, all of these conflicting truths, they are one substance. They're indivisible. In God's mind, it's all one. We tend to divide it. But in any case, you know, I've been speaking about uh, the, these... Uh, Thoughts, And I know some of you may feel implicated in what I'm saying, and you may actually it may hit you the wrong way. If you happen to be thinking like I am, then you, yeah, you know, you're in hog heaven. But if you may be, you know, um, slightly touched by what I say in a, in, a, in a different way, you may be a little bit, um, you know, perturbed or disturbed. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we need, we need to take time also to think about um, things that are more encouraging than just uh, eat your spinach, do the right thing, and, um, you know, obey the Lord. Because that's not all that there is in the kingdom of God. Um, and there are other things that, um, that cushion the burden. So I thought to myself, you know, I need to, while remaining, while remaining within this uh, call... To, to provide timely counsel of God to my congregation in the difficult times that we're living, let me take another approach and look, while offering godly counsel, point to other areas in which we can be obedient to the Lord and uh, we can flow according to God's spirit without necessarily, you know, being like a teacher, just... Just the harsh truth of God. And so these, these few verses here call us to certain qualities that we need to have. In this time of division, in this time of uh, not even knowing sometimes what truth is, like, you know, how to vote um, during this time. And in this time where different people, good people, will see things in different ways. And in times of great conflict where families are divided, you know, the, the dinner table can be one of the most dangerous places right now in America. And, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 when you get together with your friends, sometimes, you know, we're like we're walking on eggshells. We, we're trying to be careful what to say, what not to say. Sometimes you can say something very innocently, and it's like a grenade that explodes in your face. And um, it was interesting. I, uh, <clears throat> I read a, uh, in a chat in our church, in a group, um, this, this weekend, um, 
and uh, in, in, in seeing how tense people are sometimes. And by the way, I believe that our church is navigating these divisive times relatively well. We're such a diverse group of people. My God, even as I look at you right now here in a relatively modest uh, gathering, we're so diverse in every way as a congregation. And that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. But uh, we, we have, you know, the Latinos and the African-Americans and the Anglo-Europeans and, you know, middle class and the working class. We have uh, everything, people who are in fragile uh, economic circumstances, those who are, you know, more stable. We have highly educated people, others, you know, less so. Um, we have gener different generations, and even politically, we are very diverse at times, and so on and so forth. It's a, and so it is a perfect recipe for division. Th I thank the Lord that uh, we are able to, you know, feel, I, I don't feel as your pastor observing the life of this church that we are in any sort of crisis or anything like that. I think the, 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 the differences that we have are the normal differences of any assemblage of human beings that are very different. Think of your family, four or five. Sometimes four or five can't get it together. How much more so hundreds um, from all these different the backgrounds. But in the, in, all in all, I think we're in a good place. I thank the Lord for that. And as a church, you know, we are navigating these divisive times, I think, pretty well. As, as the senior pastor who is very aware of the, the general temper of the church, I'm grateful to the Lord. But imagine, you know, in, in a small chat of about 30 people, um, the kinds of uh, conflicts that can emerge. And it was nothing atomic. It wasn't nuclear war. But it made me aware of how, how you know, tender people are to anything that um, seems different or threatening. And uh, people can easily flare up in all kinds of ways. And so, you know, I thought to myself, wow, what enables the church of Jesus Christ? What enables families? What enables marriages to walk together in times where division is uh, a, a natural state of things? How can we maintain the essential unity of, in this case, uh, the church? What are some of the Christian virtues that enable us to navigate successfully times of uh, conflict, difficulty, differences of opinion, and uh, many important things hanging in the balance and uh, having different positions on what's going to affect the, that balance and being able to walk together and to stay in, in relationship, stay in community, stay in unity as the body of Jesus Christ. And this passage of Ephesians 4 has always been a favorite passage of me in many ways. And actually, the one I was going to use earlier in the light of all this thing about division, unity, uh, and crisis, and so on, and definition, and so on, was a different passage in, in chapter 4. And I will touch on it before. But I, I thought, you know, it's important to also go, go back to the beginning of this passage in order to understand fully what the second part about, you know, uh, the apostles and prophets being given so that the body of Christ may be, may be built up until we reach all the unity and speaking the, the truth in love and so on and so forth. That's further down. But here in these verses, these first verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians, we have um, the, the kinds of uh, attitudes and Christian virtues that we need to exercise and adopt. The governing principles 
that need to rule everything that we do. The specifics need to be carried out in the light of the overarching values and truths that uh, undergird all that we do. And that these, are, these are the values that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here. Um, and, you know, the first one that he says, you know, as a prisoner for the Lord, because he's in jail, he's writing to these efficient, efficient congregation. I think also he wants to um, underline the seriousness and the importance of what he is about to tell them. Here I am. I'm suffering for the Lord. My life is in danger. I'm imprisoned. But I want you to know these truths. And so pay attention. And he says, by the way, he says, of the Lord then, as a consequence, I urge you. So here's one thing. There's a sense of urgency in God wanting us to exercise and carry out these virtues, these attitudes, these behavioral rules. And when we're sitting at the, at the table at dinner or when we are in a, class, a discipleship class or when we are here listening to a sermon from the, from the pastor or from a teacher, God is saying, I urge you, I command you, I think it's really important that you carry out these, that you do things in the, with these attitudes in mind, okay? I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So number one, there's this overarching, you know, truth that um, as, as Christians, we are, we owe ourselves to a gospel that is sublime, to principles that are absolutely mind-boggling in how extraordinary they are, actions of God that carry over through thousands of years, you know, extraordinary manifestations of love, like the one of Jesus coming to he from heaven, becoming a man, dying on the cross for our sins, living the life of a servant, and, and in extreme obedience, and so on. These are sublime truths. You know, we're not just anybody. We are Christians. We are people who, who handle amazing principles. We don't know how amazing it is to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we believers, we sit here on a Sunday, and we, I think, take for granted many times that not every human being on this city, let's say, has the, the privilege to handle such phil philosophically exalted principles, morally exalted principles. We, we're philosophers, all of us. When we come into the church and when we're living the Christian life, we're handling amazing things that are beyond our pay grade. They're beyond our state in, in uh, life. And here we have workers and humble individuals and others who are a little more developed, handling amazing things. We, we, we navigate a, a gospel that is extraordinary. We are royalty. Let me tell you this. We are royalty, and not because we deserve it, understand, but because we are kings and we are priests by the Lord. We have been exalted beyond anything that we deserve. And, and therefore, there's a saying, noblesse oblige, means, you know, if you're a noble, a person of noble birth, there are certain responsibilities that uh, accrue to you. You cannot live like any, other, any regular human being, choosing who you marry, what you do. You represent the royalty, you represent the kingdom, and all eyes are on you. The Queen of England, everything she does is choreographed because she represents England. She embodies England. And so the dignity of England is expressed by her and her behavior. And she should, she's aware of that. And we, we represent the kingdom of God. When we walk, 
we, uh, the kingdom of God walks with us. People will judge the kingdom of God and the truth of the gospel by how we behave, how we carry out ourselves. So how we carry out ourselves during this time of great division in America, for example, as a people, uh, will reflect on the gospel, this exalted gospel that we have received. If people outside who are unbelievers see us fighting among each other the same way that unbelievers fight, forget it. You know, we are, we are doing an injustice to the gospel. We're not living according to the calling that we have received. If we process the divisions in our, among ourselves the same way that the world uh, handles them, forget it. I mean, we are, we are being uh, untrue to the gospel. We, we handle a gospel that has all these beautiful, beautiful truths and exalted uh, ways of behaving and of, uh, and of channeling and navigating the world. And, and, and we need to show the world that we have a power that is different, that we have a capacity to overcome the flesh that the world doesn't have available to it. We have to, in the, in the, in the, in the middle of a world that is storm-tossed, we have to be a haven of uh, love, stability, unity, gentleness, and all kinds of other great virtues. We have to be an example to the world because we are royalty. We are godly people. The world expects of us a certain behavior. So if we end up dividing and breaking up like any other institution, any other corporation or, or workplace in America uh, or community, then we have failed the gospel. We have failed our calling. And this is one that should weigh upon us, not to, you know, weigh us down, but to at least give our, our behavior a sense of dignity. We, we need to walk this time, this time of crisis, this time of division, this time of definition, in a way that the world doesn't exemplify or show. So that I, I think if we understood that alone, that would be very helpful. Because then we, it would show us that we cannot react the same way. That, you know, I cannot let my temper and my attitude and my feelings govern the way I act. No, I have to hold them back and I have to think, how does this reflect on the gospel? How does this reflect on Jesus? How does this reflect on my, my Christian community and my Christian values? And I think that should be kind of a little check on our actions so that we don't act just simply, you know, spontaneously. So we have to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Let that sink into your mind this week, and maybe you want to make it a, a point of um, meditation. In one of your times of prayer this, this week, why don't you just think about that? How am I living my life according to the calling that I have received? Uh, when people look at me, do they see this Christian royalty? Again, with all the humility that that requires. Um, am, I, am I representing the gospel well? At home, with my kids, with my family, with my neighbors, with my co-workers. Can they see the, the exaltedness of the gospel reflected in me? And so the Apostle Paul, a sublime teacher, is not about to just leave it at that level of uh, you know, generality. He goes into key uh, teachings um, about what, what it means to do that. And so there are these four words that, you know, and values that, are, that shows how we can live that way. In the middle of a conflicted nation, in the middle of conflicted congregations, in the middle of conflicted marriages and families and friendships, these values and these attitudes will help us navigate um, these moments 
successfully and well, representing the kingdom of God. And the first one, he says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. Number one, I, I immediately admit defeat. You can say, be completely humble. Nobody is completely humble. Um, but, uh, you know, we should strive for humility. Humility. And um, immediately, as I hear that, I, I have to acknowledge that I cannot do it by myself. Humility is not a human trait. Um, and therefore, I'm going to need uh, lots of uh, Holy Spirit power. And I think all of these values that we have here require great uh, appeal to the Holy Spirit of God to strengthen us, to give us the grace that we need to show this, these values. Because, uh, you know, God expects us to do this. You know, that first word, humble, tapeinofrosune, tapeinofrosune is the word in Greek. And I'm not going to do a word study because one word would just take us the whole time. It, 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 I was reading some commentaries, and it says that uh, it was a word that is really only a Christian word. It was really made up. It, it was invented or crafted by Christians originally. It was not a word, according to a very um, uh, highly developed uh, erudite of the Greek language. It was not a word that uh, was common in the Greek language. Um, to be humble, and, and especially in Roman culture, because Rome actually, you know, uh, glorified manliness and cruelty and virility and so on and so forth. That's why people could not understand Jesus. They could not understand a God who would die on a cross, a God who would let himself be crucified and exhibited for public viewing. Impossible. So, you know, to the carnal mind, to the... the uh, Proud Greek uh, Roman culture, humility was not a a word that uh, was ex was seen as a great virtue. Christianity, this 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 religion of a uh, a crucified Savior who humbles himself unto death, had to come up with a word that would you know include this. So they had to invent their own word. That word tapenofrosune is a word that is common and germane to Christian culture. And originally, in the Greek language, tapeinos, which is the noun, uh, was, was the negative in connotation. It referred to things that are slavish, things that are submitted to a superior authority, cringing, and, you know, fearful, weak, servile. servile. It, it was a word that was associated with weakness. Think of Nietzsche, you know, thinking that Christianity was a, a religion for the weak. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes Christianity talking about being humble as something that is necessary and uh, godly. And, and this, is, this is one of the words that, you know, I grate against it myself, my temperament, uh, humility, being humble. But it is a word that keeps families and marriages and churches in unity. And we need to exercise it. We need to ask the Lord to give us understanding about that. And humility... It will help us to cultivate humility, knowing, number one, that everything that we have is from God. Every good thing that we have comes from Him. Success, money, a good family. If we have godly children, it has to come from God. It, it doesn't come from me. I don't produce good things. So that's number one. I'm going to just race through these things. I see the time. Uh, number two, I think humility, if, in order for us to be humble in our relationships, we have to know that our knowledge is always partial. We don't know everything. 
We, we, we only see a part of the story. And uh, we, know, we always need to know that um, later on, we might have to say, hey, I was wrong. There are some convictions that I have right now in my life that in the light of the next few years, I might have to eat crow, or crow, is it English? Crow, and uh, my Spanish uh, gets to me sometimes. And, um, you know, we, we have to, we have to uh, always, no matter how certain we are that we're right, you always have to keep in your mind this idea, you know, I might be wrong. Later on, in the light of more knowledge, I might uh, uh, have to admit that I was wrong. Many times in my pastorate, I have preached things that now, in the light of many years afterwards, I realize I was wrong. And in the, in the light of this time that we're living in, with all our political convictions and so on and so forth, I suggest that all of us, beginning with me, we need to hold our truths while we live in conviction, but also know that there's a possibility that, that with the passing of time, I might discover something else. I, you know, this might, so that means that I have to also give people the benefit of the doubt many times. Again, it's, it's a tense thing, living with conviction and living with this sense of also partial knowledge. Uh, but we have to find the best way to do that because both are true. And, um, you know, we need to be humble about the things that we... So sometimes when I'm tempted to just throw a grenade at my friend who's saying something that I don't like, wait, that's a big step. And who knows, in the, in the next few days, the next few months, I, I might... And, and that gives us a certain level of humility. Um, it is also, you know, humility is also uh, uh, based on this knowing that um, there are many people who are much holier, much more knowledgeable and nobler than I am. Uh, you know, there are people who are much more mature than I am. And uh, I, I still have a long way to go. Paul himself used to say, I'm the chief of all of sinners. You know, um, and uh, we have to be willing to admit that there are people who know more than we do, who have more revelation from God than we do, who are more biblically conversant than we are. And so we need to take a pill of humility as well, when you feel that you're the sum of all virtues, know that right here in this congregation, I know that there are people who will get to heaven before I do, and uh, who will probably have a bigger condo than I will when I get to heaven, even though they never preach the sermon, but their heart is so much more pleasing to God, and I got to walk with a certain level of humility. And then the last thing is that, you know, I think humility is knowing that God is often doing things that we're not aware of. I don't know everything that God is up to. That's why I, I, I visited somebody this uh, week that is going through a difficult uh, health situation. And, you know, I, I cannot tell them with absolute certainty that God will deliver them from that situation. Not because my faith is not strong enough, but because I don't know what God is up to necessarily. And I have to walk within that element of certitude and declaring God's healing on a person who is sick, but knowing that God's greatest mercy may be to take them with him and to put a final period to their narrative here on, on, on earth. And so I got to walk very carefully, you know, and even in this time, I mean, you know, this historical time that we're living in in America, we don't know for sure what God is up to. There may be things that in the short term might seem horrible, but in the long term might work out for good. This is what uh, Julian of Norwich said. <clears throat> our, our knowledge is always partial, and so we're living things that we can't say, what good could ever come out of that? But God is the strategic thinker who is always doing things that we're not even aware of. 
And we should always judge the reality that we are living with a certain level of tentativeness. Uh, because we don't know what may happen in the light of uh, a few years later. I saw the, this great documentary, Challenger, about the, the, you know, the explosion of the, that ship uh, that went, uh, was uh, sailing into space. There were two women there, two teachers, who were chosen as candidates to go on that. One of them only could do it, but out of 10 finalists, from hundreds of finalists, two were chosen. One was a replacement, and uh, the other was the, the one who was chosen. That teacher, I won't get into her name right now because I don't have it with me, but, you know, she was chosen finally. <clears throat> and you can imagine that, that other young teacher thinking, man, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, look at her. She's, she's getting on that plane. She's getting all the attention. She's getting all the glory. And then when that, she wasn't necessarily thinking that, but when that challenger vessel goes up, and one minute later or less, it explodes. I think she must have been very happy not to have been chosen uh, to go on that uh, voyage. But we, she didn't know it at the moment until that thing <clears throat> exploded and she had complete knowledge. She, she probably felt, what a, what a failure. I wish I could have. I'm better or I, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes we don't know. We don't know what God is up to. And so sometimes things that we think are huge tragedies may actually end up for good. And so, you know, all of this are along humility, humility, and I know that uh, the time, but it's such a huge word. So humility, in these times of division, let's exercise humility consciously, okay? And then he says, uh, be completely humble and gentle. Je meekness is another classical way of, of uh, translating that word, praotes. Praotes is humility, the noun, praotes. And uh, we, uh, congregations can only stay together in unity and love and navigate times of crisis and division by people in it exercising gentleness or meekness, which is the, the classical word. Um, in the time that we are living in, being gentle or meek is a very rational thing. It is not something that will come out of us naturally. Exercising gentleness is something that we must put on, just like all these other concepts are. These are things that we, like you said, the Bible says, put on the armor of God. Well, we need to put the armor of gentleness and humility. Uh, we have to put it on because it's not on us. It's not our skin. But we need to make a decision to be gentle with each other. To, among other things about uh, being gentle, is, you know, we, we need to respond or react softly and patiently when we are angry or feeling threatened by the comment of somebody else or by the belief of someone else. We cannot act in the flesh. What happens when you feel insecure, <clears throat> when you feel that um, your well-being is threatened, whoever represents that threat or whoever incarnates it with a comment that, but that reminds you of what you're feeling, that insecurity, you react aggressively, angrily. And that is the moment when in that micro instant between the stimulus and the response, in that very brief space of time, you must insert gentleness. And you'll say, hold it, Let me, I, I cannot react 
the way my flesh, my, my, neuro, my, my neurology is asking me to, I will react softly, I will react patiently, and I will try to not offend. Because if I react the wrong way, I may not be able to take back my words. I may not be able to take back the offense. I may not be able to, to undo the, the harm that I have done this individual. You know, and we, I think we need to train ourselves preemptively to, to do that. Because sometimes we give ourselves a satisfaction of reacting rapidly. Uh, and sometimes that can be a violent way of reacting, a wounding way of reacting. And that has huge consequences. The, emo the emotion that you feel might dissipate in a moment. It may just disappear. But the, the, the consequences of you reacting uh, angrily, roughly, uh, may last for a whole friendship or a whole marital relationship. So we need to ask the Lord to give us that. You know, we must react. We must take a breath. We must give ourselves a little time before we react. And we have to react in a way that is as soft and as gentle as possible, even though we want to strike back, even though we have the right word that will immediately neutralize that person. And I think also in, in acting meekly and, and gently, we have to wait for the appropriate time. That's really important. That is a thing that we need to cultivate in our lives, waiting for the right time to act instead of acting uh, in the heat of the moment or the heat of the emotion and, and so that we have enough time to control our response, waiting for the appropriate time to act. I have learned over my life many, many times in pastoral um, work that if I, you know, there may be situations in the, in the life of the church that, you know, I, I know that I just have to wait and people are rushing me and pushing me to do something. And they think that my, my inaction is due to weakness. Or, and I, I just know that uh, often when you give things time, um, you know, somehow they resolve themselves. I'm a, I try in some ways when I can and when the Lord in, indicates to me and I hear him to be a minimalist in, uh, in my pastoral interventions. And I often try to just wait a while Wait, I, I've been saved from many, many fights, costly battles, by simply waiting for the right time and letting things work out themselves. They, and often they do. There are many times when you have to act. But then there are many times when you have to wait. And often people will not understand how long sometimes pastors must wait um, in order to act. Uh, because if you act too quickly, you can mess things up. And so if you speak too quickly also, so you, you got to give yourself the time so that you can act gently and, uh, you know, give the person time to work their anger out or whatever. So that's in, in this word of meekness and gentleness, this idea of uh, waiting, don't act on the spur of the moment. And all of these qualities have that same condition to them. It, it, gentleness is also choosing not to strike offend or neutralize your opponent when you easily could that's also gentleness sometimes you can you can just add you can use that word that will strike like a knife and just shut up that person that has offended you and you have to choose gentleness and that's you know that's only with, through the holy spirit not to raise our voice unnecessarily not to take offense easily when we could that's part of the whole gentleness thing and people as i say Ask, pray, pray. And I think the, the thing is that our consciousness needs to be raised about the value of these virtues. If we understand alone that they are important, that would be a long way toward actually embodying them. Often, I think, in, our, in, in church, we're not taught 
the value, the importance and the practical value of these virtues. And so we don't give attention to them. We don't give importance to them. We don't dedicate time to cultivating them. We don't pray over them. And so we never develop them. But if you just know that it is important and you pray over this, Father, help me to be a gentle person. Help me to be humble only with your Holy Spirit. And when you don't act in these ways, then you repent. You ask for forgiveness. You go to the person that you offended. Or uh, even if you were right in doing it, but you know that you have violated that high calling that you were called to. Uh, and therefore, you ask for forgiveness. And, and as you live your life in the light of these values, they become more and more important. They are integrated into your psyche, into your programming. The Holy Spirit works more. And that gift is then developed more. So it's all about, you know, understanding that these things are hugely important. Humility, gentleness. And he says, be patient. Be patient. Macrothumia. Macrothumia. There you will see the word macro, which means uh, large. You know, and the idea is I, I once read a commentary on this word of macrothumia, meaning to have a long... Um, uh, yeah, you know a bomb, you know, in the, in the cartoons, this bomb that has a long string. So you have a long string, una mecha larga. You have a, a long string so that when the fire is lit, it takes a long time for it to get to the bomb and explode it. That's what macrothumia is. You know, you, you, before you explode, it takes a long time to make you explode. There's the word long suffering as well. Uh, which is a very quaint word, long-suffering. But suffering in that sense doesn't mean, you know, you're, 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 you're under pain. No, long-suffering, to suffer means to stand, to, to hold on to something. Like you have a weight on your shoulder and you stay, you hold, you hold it up, you keep holding it up. That means long, you suffer the pressure. You resist and withstand the pressure it is, uh, in, my, in my opinion, I think long-suffering and being patient means uh, taking a long-term view of people and relationships. Taking a long-term view of things. That is, a, that is a usually associated with aging. Youth it has a hard time thinking of long-term. But as we age, and we have seen so many things resolved that we thought had no resolution, and some of our kids, we thought were going to be sure criminals. They turned out to be amazing people. And so we know that, hey, you got to give time for, for things to season and to mature. You can't just jump the gun right away, you know. And um, I, I've learned over 34 years of uh, ministry that things that I thought were, didn't have a resolution, they did resolve themselves. They worked out. Uh, relationships that I thought were broken forever were mended. Mistakes that were made um, were corrected. And, uh, and I have understood that I'm just along for the ride many times, that God is in control and that I need to take a long-term view of relationships. I may think that this situation, nothing good can come out of this relationship. You know, it's, it's irretrievably broken, but with the passing of time, I discovered that things are smoothed out and we see things different way. The circumstances that prompted the conflict are resolved and you know, we were, we, we, we were left wondering what was the big struggle and, and, and difficulty about. So taking a long-term view, being patient has this, this idea. Don't, 
Don't see the stimulus as, as the definitive thing. See it in the light of the process. And that would give you an opportunity to wait, to be patient with that child that drives you crazy, with that husband or wife that doesn't seem to learn from the lesson, from the experiences, the, that pastor who keeps nagging you with something from the pulpit. Give them time. Take time. Don't just jump the gun. Don't just leave. Because I think if you leave a relationship impatiently, immediately that you don't like what it is about, believe me, you will spend your whole life going from relationship to relationship. You will never mature. You will never grow. You will never become uh, like Christ. M maturity and emotional stability are crafted within the heat of long-term stability and relationships. There are people who have been through dozens of churches in their life always looking for the perfect church there's no perfect church actually God designed it thus so that you would grow in Christian values and you have to stay at something you have to stay in a marriage if if you know the first time you see when you start seeing things that you don't like in your husband or your wife and you jump the, the, the you know you, you you leave the boat immediately uh, God designed marriage to be an imperfect relationship and he designed your partner with the specific things that will irritate you so that as you stay tethered to them you will grow in the virtues of Jesus Christ forgiveness love patience long-term view and so on and so forth so you know this patience is so important and also I think giving God time to act before we take retaliatory or corrective action you will notice that many of these virtues have this idea of giving God time to act and taking God into account putting him into the equation if you think that everything depends on you alone and what you do or don't do say or don't say you're in trouble you know what helps me in my life is knowing that God is in my situation that he is hovering over my life and everything that I do and that he sometimes can intervene in such ways and he has that are amazingly simple and to the point and clinical and uh, that when I ask him to intervene and I consciously activate his work in whatever situation I find myself in and then I give him time to work because he's a, he's a master craftsman and he's into process uh, things work out for good and it doesn't mean that you don't act but you know you have to give the Lord time to act you have to assume that if he is with you and you are with him then he will take an active role in all the processes of life that you are living it doesn't depend on you alone give God time to work in your life and assume that he's at work I cannot tell you how delighted I am over and over and over again when, when he steps into a situation, he resolves it for me without my having to fire one single shot because I didn't attack when I needed to, because I gave him time to act, because I didn't jump the gun, because I didn't throw myself off a bridge. I gave him time, and I gave the person time. That's what patience is, macrothumia, having a long fuse, not striking back at the first opportunity, waiting for all the facts to come in before you make a conclusion or you take action. All of these things are implicated in the word patience, macrothumia. These three qualities require and presuppose the conviction on our part that God wants to intervene in our relationships, that God is real, 
that he is capable of intervening on our behalf so that we don't have to fight all the battles, that he is in control and that our job is to release him to act in any situation and to give him space to bring about the best solution possible. I'm going to leave it there. There's a, the fourth one, it would be a grave injustice for me to speak about love in uh, just a couple of seconds. We've already exceeded our time and uh, I'll let the Lord provide me with the opportunity to speak about that exalted word of love. Because love is the color white, which includes all the other colors. Humility, patience, meekness are included in love. Love includes all the virtues. It is the perfect circle. Um, and it is a summary of all. And if you can exercise the other three, it's because you have love in you. Agape, love. The, God, the, the love of God. So this morning, uh, let us pray. Just uh, whatever posture you want to adopt, whether you want to bow your head or you want to look inside yourself or look high up to the heavens and ask the Lord. I know that I have disqualified myself as soon as I opened my mouth with this sermon. I, 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 I was disqualified. These things are a source of agony for me many times. Uh, if I were a better man, I would just know that that's the way it is and as I've told you I would just let the Lord be the Lord but no many times I, I, I suffer because I know that I'm far from humility far from meekness far from patience but it's a journey it's a journey and I need God's grace and Lion of Judah needs God's grace America needs God's grace we require right now this uh, humility this patience this uh, gentleness and uh, let's ask the Lord to invade my life your life with uh, these qualities and to keep me aware of them my home my marriage our church the enemy wants to sow division he, he is a he's a he's a fighter he, he thrives on division and discord we won't let him in Jesus name uh, as, as a church as a family right now we refuse to give Satan any hold on this church, on this family. And we thank him because until now he has kept us. With all the tension, he has kept us. And we glorify him. And my eyes are placed on this Jesus, who he, he really, he, he was able to exemplify all of these virtues. And he's my model. He keeps me humble as well. And so Jesus Christ, you who have perfected these virtues, we want to learn from you, and we want you to download into us, through your spirit, these virtues. And we declare them over our congregation. Lion of Judah will be a church, no matter how imperfectly, characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience, by love. And Lord, we will have the victory. We will be a community that exemplifies these values of the gospel. And we, we ask your forgiveness right now. And if we have offended anyone in our family, in our marriage, in our father or motherhood, uh, as a pastor, I repent, we repent. Help us to walk this walk patiently with a long-term vision in a way that is not carnal or human, but divine. Thank you for 
the fact that we can depend on you, Lord. We give you glory and honor, Jesus. We stand on your word this morning. Lead us from here with the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that passes all understanding so that we might not feel condemned in any way by what we have heard. But on the contrary, stimulated and encouraged to re-enter this journey with more commitment than ever. I bless your people, good people, Father. Noble, hardworking, ambitious people in the best sense of the word. And, and I thank you for the, the nobility that you have allowed to be exemplified in this family. It's all due to your grace in us. Now may your blessing cover us as we leave this place. Go with us with your peace. In Jesus' name we pray and the people of God say, Amen. Amen. God bless you.